This podcast is presented by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. And they playing the chess game and we the pawns. And so we busy, you know, arguing about whether or not we should be in solidarity with Palestine or we should be in solidarity with, you know, Trinidadians fight for reparations or Palestinians fighting against, you know, for their own country back. And they'll use that as a way for us not to understand that we are also paying for that. It is our money that is paying for those bombs that are being dropped. But we ain't got no health care. Homelessness is increasing exponentially, you know, across this country. And nobody and that's not being addressed. Welcome to Black Work Talk, the podcast voice of Black workers, leaders, activists, and intellectuals exploring connections between race, capitalism, labor, and culture, and the struggle for democratic, progressive governing power. I'm your host, Bianca Cunningham. And I'm your host, Jamala Rogers. On this episode, I'll be joined by lifelong activist and organizer with the Black Workers for Justice, Shafia Mbalia, who's going to discuss the importance of organizing Black workers in the South, why worker solidarity should be extended to the movement for free Palestine, and much, much more. So on episodes of Black Work Talk, we will spend a lot of time in conversation with folks who are already organizers in the labor movement. They're also people who are coming into this movement as new workers, and we want to make sure that those who are interested and wanting to engage and organize uh, know how to do that because one of the things that I think we need to minimize is is the number of mistakes that can be made as you sort of build your committee and move on to creating a union. So there are a number of tactics that we look at as we are building these committees and looking at how do you actually get to a union. And here we are going to ask Bianca to share her insights about that. Bianca. Thanks, Jamala. So today we're going to talk about building majority support. So... After you've had conversations with your coworkers, you have a representative committee um, and have identified, you know, issues that everybody really cares about and is willing to, you know, move to, you know, change. You need to talk, start to talk openly and build your base. So this is beyond even the committee or your initial trusted ones. Ideally, you and the committee have sat down and mapped out your workplace by name or department, right? Listed all the people out and gave somewhat of a blind assessment, if you will, of where you feel like those folks are in relation to support for the union. Normally, a one being the most supportive. Uh, those are probably people who you've already spoken to or are really well aware of. Two, p- meaning people you don't know or maybe on the fence. Or three, meaning people who you know are going to be openly uh, against the union. So in this phase where you're talking to your coworkers and building majority support through these one-on-one conversations, you want to figure out who are the best people to have you know, conversations with who based on relationships or familiarity or the fact that we work next to each other, you know, whatever the case may be. And so you want to identify who are the best people to talk to the twos. And then you want to come up with a game plan to not be super explicit right off the bat in those conversations, but to be a little bit more vague. So just thinking about my own experience when I was having conversations with people who I wasn't quite sure where they would stand, I started by asking them about the things that they care about. And setting out hypotheticals. So I never talked about a union necessarily, but I talked about what would it look like for us to have power to affect some change in our workplace, whether that be over wages or benefits or even like um, smaller practices like how we take breaks. And so getting their feedback will let you know whether or not they support a union coming in. So you want to really, you have to be actively listening and you also have to be calculating in your head at the same time that you're listening um, about where you're going to take the conversation. And so if you find that they're very animated and that they feel strongly about some of the same issues that you all have identified or they're excited about the prospect of being able to affect change or take issues to them to management, then maybe you want to trust them a little 
little bit more to talk about what those steps would be. If you find that they're a little bit more afraid or kind of retracting or feeling uncomfortable in those situations, that's probably an invitation for you to stop where you are and kind of bring it back to the group to assess how you would want to continue um, sharing information with that person. You might notice that I only talked about having conversations with twos. We should be completely ignoring the threes right now actively and also making sure that the twos that we're talking to aren't too close to some of those threes to go run tell that. So just being really, really, really careful about that. But in addition, once you're having these conversations, and another really great way to build support for the union is to get your coworkers to sign like some sort of like petition or a letter that states like what your key issues and goals are. For us, we had like kind of like a manifesto, if you will, where we talked about the importance of continuing the into the path of the civil rights movement by advocating for Black workers' rights in our own jobs and in our own positions, right? And so we talked about standing on the shoulders of our ancestors, right? Um, and really like wanting to make things better for the greater good of the employees in the company, not just for ourselves. Something that we had every single person kind of sign so that we can deliver it once we did get to some of the later steps. But it also kind of solidified by seeing other people's names on the paper. It kind of grows and then you realize you're not in this alone. And so it's something to build momentum, but also to establish support. And then lastly, I just want to say that you legally only need 30% of uh, people on cards to file at the NLRB, you need people to sign a card to say that they want to have an election to vote for a union. That's the purpose of those conversations, right? But even though you only need 30% by law, any good union organizer would tell you you need at least 80% because you're going to have drop off. Like people are going to get intimidated, back out, change their mind once the company starts their anti union campaign. So just something to keep in mind. So, Bianca, a couple of things that I thought about while you were talking, because you talk, one of the things you said was standing on the shoulders of our ancestors. And it may sound like this conversation is likened to runaway slaves when you're trying to get off the plantation and you have to be careful about mm. who you talk to. It's not exactly the same thing, but it's the same fear that's guiding people. And that is, you don't want to get in any trouble. You are wanting to disassociate yourself with the folks who are planning these rebellions and these runaways. So part of it is just self-preservation. But to your point, it's like, those are the people that you're not going to be engaged in. You know, these people would, you know of them already by some of the viewpoints that they've expressed at, in the break room, okay? So you know that they're going to be opposed to a union because they're going up against, you know, the white establishment. That's so interesting that you liken it to that. I mean, I do think that people would say, you know, our current uh, labor system is somewhat, somewhat of like a you know um, a system of slavery. Certainly not not likening it to shadow slavery, but some sort of slavery, right? And I feel like this is also just like to your point, tied to survival. We need our jobs to survive, and our jobs are tied to our ability to survive many times. And so that's why that fear is so effective in this place because nobody wants to lose their livelihood or their ability to provide for themselves and their families. Yeah, I, I just think we have to be mindful of that. Those are not going to be the folks in your inner circle where you discuss some strategy and tactics because they they are going to be alarmed that even such things are happening. Uh, the other thing that I think is important is for people who may not be so fearful um, as the people that we're talking about, but who do have some reservations. Uh, you know, the approach that sometimes I take with them is, Let's get it on the ballot or let's get it in front of folks in the petition uh, so that people have a right to vote up or down. And sometimes I found that that is effective because it, it doesn't mm. mean that you agree. It means that you agree that we should have the right to for all of us to vote it up or down. And uh, that that has proved to be effective for some people because they did not want to be seen as somebody that was stopping others, because we've been talked, we, we, we've been taught about you know majority rules. So even if you are opposed to it, are you going to suppress the other voices that need to be heard or the other uh, 
ways that we are trying to organize people. So I, I always felt like for those people on the on the fence, not like they're scared or I'm a tell on y'all, but just needing a little bit of a nudge to be able to say, we just want to get this in front of the workers and your signing this will help get that. If you decide later to vote it down, that's your right to do that. But by that time, you have an opportunity to actually engage them some more and solidify uh, their support for a union. So today on Black Work Talk, we are going to be having a conversation with Shafia Mbalia. And Shafia is a member of the Black Workers for Justice. She served many capacities in an organization over the last 40 years, uh, including uh, being a founding member of the Women's Commission. Uh, she's a founding member of Muslims for Social Change, and she's the Southern Regional Coordinator for the Imam Jamil Action Network. And she's the co-director of the Community. Uh, so you could see working, organizing workers is in her DNA. And so those intersections, believe me, she's she's working on. So welcome to the show today, Shafia. Thank you so much, Jamala, for having me. Um, it is it's an honor um, and a pleasure to hang out with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We haven't done it in a minute. So in yeah. a long time. Yes. And and I don't I feel even good that it's uh via uh virtual. So I'm not gonna even complain just being able to see you and hear you, uh, other than like on email and, and that kind of thing. So yeah, but you've been yes. quite busy. Uh and, and you were busy even before the Israeli attack on, on Palestine. So we're gonna get to that in a minute. Uh, but I really want uh, the listeners to understand the strategic importance of organizing in the South and particularly organizing workers in the South. So can you speak a little bit to why that's important and why that is a dominant theme right now for a union and other labor groups, workers' rights groups in the South? Well, let's let's start with, you know, what is the strategic role that the South plays both in the U.S. economy and even in the world economy. You know, what is projected about the South is that it's poor, ain't got no money, that folks are ignorant, everything is that it's just, just agricultural and, and all this other stuff. And it's, and it's real, you know, some backwater that has nothing to do with, um, you know, what's happening in the world. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Since the inception of the United States, it has the uh, south of the southern part of this this what is now called the United States has played a pivotal role economically in both the development of the United States and its history. And he, uh, uh, before that, but cotton played a major role in in the development of the economy. And in fact, the exportation. Of of cotton when in the to Europe, Britain in particular was as much if not larger than the rest of the economy. When you when you put everything together, it played a humongous role in 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 the um, the input of resources, and that does not even include the question of slavery in terms of the bodies, the labor, right, the sale of bodies, the breeding of bodies, the labor of our bodies um, as, as, as Black people, as enslaved Africans, that does not even include the, the monetary value of that, of those, the combination of those things into this economy. Of course, while there was slavery in the North, there was slavery, you know, the, the importation of slaves and then the breeding of the forced breeding of human beings it was a major part of the economy of the South and contributed to the North. And in fact, you know, that, 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 that question was the, the fundamental question that was really being fought over, you know, Lincoln ain't care nothing about us, you know, uh, that we one, know. Of things, one of the few things that Kanye said, right. They don't care about you. <laughs> and so the economics of it uh, is the, the, the growth of the country period the fact that Black people and enslaved Africans were counted as three-fifths of a person 
had to do with the question of control of the South in Congress, in the U.S. Congress, so that what they called antebellum congressmen could control, you know, the important committees and direction of the country. So from the very beginning, and of course, you, you know, we, the, the, the question of genocide of the indigenous people, you know, this place wasn't always the United States. You know, this is a state apparatus that was uh, created on top of peoples. And it is estimated, been said, that there are as many people who were living on this continent as were in Europe at the time, just in a bigger space. But we'll, we'll move forward and then look at, so, you know, four of the busiest ports in the U.S. or in the South. Much of the military, the U.S. military is based in the South. Charlotte and Atlanta are major world financial centers of banking. And so when you combine all of those things, recently, uh, in fact, just this past week with the United Auto Workers strike, you know, they talked about not, we, we could get into the, the, the strategy, which was just was sharp, was, you know, we need to study that. Of, of what the UAW did and strengthen, strengthen those caucuses and all other unions that, you know, just turn stuff upside down. But one of the key things that came out in a Democracy Now! interview with the, um, the president of UAW is they talked about not only the wages of the lowest paid workers, and we know who's always the lowest paid. We all know who's the, the first hired excuse me, the last hired and the first fired, but on top of their their wages going up from something like $18 an hour to up to 40 in a few years, um, that the UAW is going to be uh, going after this, the new push, the new wave of, of uh, auto branch plants and EV plants, right? Uh, the, the battery plants that are being uh, constructed now that they're going after those those plants, and guess where they are? They're in the south. Yeah, they're across the south. And one of the things that Black Workers for Justice discovered in the work that we were doing is that you know many people do not understand that the auto industry, while you know the big three are based in Detroit and and have you know major plants in major parts of the country. But they have contracted out in the supply chain across the South, major you know, plants and, and workers, because of the propaganda campaign, anti-union uh, propaganda war for decades, that folks don't understand that they are actually part of the auto industry. And so they think that they're, they think that they're part of the bezel industry and the right. window industry and the chair, you know, um, industry, but those different parts um, all make up the supply chain, you know, into putting together a car. Where I live in Savannah, in, in Savannah, Georgia, uh, they're getting ready for at least two battery plants, maybe three, um, in in southern and middle Georgia. I think the third is in middle, might be in North Georgia. I can't remember right now. And so there's a major part that the South plays inside the country, and then that international, that economic uh, base has international ties around the world. And uh, forgive me, I'm, I'm blanking right now, but in terms of, you know, you've got not just, you know, uh, Ford and GM, but you've got Nissan, you got Hyundai, you got Honda, um, you've got all manner of of. Uh, international or global manufacturing companies that have major operations in the United States South. Why? Because there are no unions, because the union history is, is shallow. Folks don't have that information. You know, there's been this serious propaganda campaign waged and what, what states call business friendly. When they, mean, when they say business friendly, what they mean is anti-union. Yeah. <laughs> 
Hi, this is Caden, the publisher of Convergence Magazine. There are a lot of places that you can put your hard-earned money in support of our movements, but if you're enjoying this show, I hope you'll consider subscribing to Convergence on Patreon. We're a small, independent operation and rely heavily on our readers and listeners like you to support our work. You can join us at patreon.com slash convergencemag. Subscriptions are pay what you can, but at 10 bucks a month, you'll get goodies as well as knowing you're helping to build a better media system one that supports people's movements and fights fascism. And if you can't afford it right now, don't worry. All our shows will be free for you to enjoy. You can also help by leaving us a positive review or sharing this episode with a comrade. Thank you so much for listening. So, Shafir, just based on what you said in terms of giving that history and looking at the South geographical, uh, uh, politically. And I'm thinking about, for example, what would make organizing workers down there much different from anywhere else in the country, just, just based on that history, the history of, you know, uh, low or no unionization, uh, the fact that you had white pathology helping to shape not only the mindset of white in the South, but Blacks as well. So what kind of barriers did that create for organizing in the South? Well, we we looked at, you know, thinking about the role that the South itself plays, you know, in the world, and then looking at, you know, workers themselves. And, um, you know, Malcolm X said that, you know, there's an up South and a down South. Um, but there is a real difference in in the sense of that the South has always been the bastion, the birthling, you know, of the most virulent racism. Uh, and and that translates into, for example, um, even more of a a uh, a struggle around leadership of of uh, of black workers, the question of more of a a control by corporations of the of the business climate and and of the propaganda machine um the south is also has it's not surprising to see you know to go in a small town or between small towns and all of a sudden you'll see a huge plant employing hundreds or thousands of workers and maybe they pay a little bit more than was being paid outside. That's what happened in one of the things that happened in Bessemer, Alabama, um, is that there was the threat, you know, which uh, of of shutting down the plant or or paying the wages of of what is in the area. And if it's a matter of two dollars or four dollars or five dollars, you know, more per hour, you know, that's a significant amount in someone's paycheck. Uh, and of course, as I said, the mess the question of racism and then and when you have plants and manufacturing that is let's say isolated from each other you don't have neighborhoods like you might have in St. Louis or in the large cities where that the plant is located in a neighborhood people live nearby and so it affects the the thinking the organization of a neighborhood or community you know uh, that's all you know, close together. And so it makes it that much more, more difficult for folks to see solidarity with each other or, or to see how the, the, the plant's uh, existence there has a direct impact on their lives other than the paycheck. Um, but what does it mean for mm-hmm. the community? What does it mean for control of the local political system? The local political system in, in, in many of the smaller towns are much more vulnerable to the budgets of, of corporations to have an impact. So they'll, they'll make a donation, you know, for playgrounds and churches and that are the kind of, of, uh, of donations that, that, um, they're not used to getting. Um, and, and they have therefore much more of an impact on chambers of commerce. For example, well, you know, if you don't like this, then we can move, you know, we, mm-hmm. to move yeah. um, and therefore right. impact on the tax base. 
the the question of of workers isolation from each other is a very is a very real one in that it's much more difficult for folks to see the solidarity between each other if you're not also seeing directly the impacts of the economy how the economy affects each other unless it's really wholesale in Rocky Mount North Carolina where I used to live when NAFTA was passed it was something like 15 plants shut down and the t- wow. the town and, and for listeners who uh, I just want to say Shafi for listeners who may not know uh explain what NAFTA is North American Free Trade Agreement uh and it's an international trade agreement that took place between Canada the United States and Mexico to to play with uh tariffs and taxes and and therefore development between and commerce between the countries so it made it much easier for example for sledge lock you know the folks that make those locks in your door well they'd already mm-hmm. moved from san francisco to rocky mount where they paid something i think somewhere around 16 18 an hour and they'd already moved to rocky mount where they paid folks something like 8 to 12 an hour you had people who mm-hmm. who who retired you know, making no more than 12 something an hour. Right. And so one day they came mm. in and said, we're going to move and we're moving to after NAFTA, we're going to move, we're moving to Mexico. And they said, well, why? This is the flagship state, you know, the flagship plant. You making money. They said, yeah, we making money. We just want to make more. And so we moved <laughs> right, to Mexico. Right. Mm. And where we can pay people eight to 12 a day. And mm. so one of the things that we did was was to, um, you know, have some workers went down to Mexico and passed out leaflets at the plant, the new plant, when it opened up, besides struggling around pay and terminate uh, severance packages, we sent a delegation down to the plant in Mexico to explain to the Mexican workers what the plant was doing. And, you know, discussions with workers in 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 the united states about that it's not the problem of the mexican workers the mexican workers are trying to eat they just they're there it's the it's the company that is making the decisions and using us all like like chess pieces and so mm-hmm. it's a lot more difficult to figure out workers impact on each other because of the isolation the smaller towns you know the greater distances you know, the less compactness of neighborhoods uh, and communities uh, with each other. And so that's, you know, one of the things that that are important. And of course, with the lack of history of of unionization, folks, you have we always have to do a lot more. There's a lot more education that that has to be done about what it means to have a union in the workplace. And we're going to definitely get to the role of education in a minute, Shafia. But you, when you were talking about the, how these plants pick uh, sites that's conducive to their self-interest, and I remember uh, the plant in St. Louis, at least the GM plant, was built initially in a predominantly white residential area so that it made it accessible for those white workers to come. Over a short period of time, that neighborhood became predominantly Black. A lot of those workers were Black. And a lot of those workers also happened to be members of the Organization for Black Struggle. So it made the plant facility accessible for protests, for a number of activities. So in 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 a in, in a very short time, they said, uh, we think we're moving to Wentzville, Missouri. And Wentzville, Missouri is predominantly white and predominantly rural. It's about 40 minutes away from St. Louis. So, you know, in other words, you Negroes won't be on the sidewalk there because there are no sidewalks. So, uh, you know, when you were saying that, I'm like, oh, yeah, you know, that's definitely what we saw happening here in in St. Louis. And also when the other piece that you talked about was how NAFTA, the the role that it played in really undermining uh, workers, you know, whether they be in in Mexico or or, uh, the South, but I also thought about the power of unions globally 
when these kinds of issues come up, I'm like you all. You said talked about the way you all went there to really, really, it was about solidarity. And as the world has gotten smaller and the communications are a lot wider, we've been able to do that. And specifically, I remember just jaw dropping kind of response when I saw how during the anti-apartheid movement to see the the uh, international longshoremen shut down ports. But so I don't, you know, I, I don't know that people understand like when you got that kind of power of workers and you got an issue that you're trying to impact globally, you you got the power at home. That's, that's to me just the, so inspiring. So we got to remember that workers stri- strikes and worker struggles all across the, the globe, we're all connected because a lot of times it's the same damn uh, corporations that have spread their wings in other places. That reminds me of um, the Charlotte, uh, Charlotte, Charleston, the Charleston dock workers. Mm. Oh, yes. What was that in 2005? I think it was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just about that time. The, mm-hmm. the, the lieutenant governor was running, wanted to be governor, and he was supporting this company who they wanted to build a non union port uh, facility on somewhat near a, a, a facility, I think in, in North Charleston, that where's the Charleston was was organized was unionized and so a lot of folks don't understand like for example there's a lot of black workers up in up in 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 dock workers and it's one of the few jobs that Mm -hmm. you don't you can feed your family without having had a quote-unquote college degree you can might not Mm -hmm. even need a high school i'm not sure but you can feed a family you don't have to have three jobs they pay well enough and that's because that's only because that there's a union and it's not has nothing to do with the, you know, the good graces of, you know, the whim of management. And uh, so when the workers got 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 wind that that uh, this company wanted to build this other facility that would be non-union, you know, they began to fight about that. Well, mm-hmm. uh, the state of of uh, Carolina, South Carolina, they made that a political and a criminal issue by um, arresting you know, a numbers of workers uh, uh, for demonstrating. And the key, in- the key lesson that you were pointing out was the kind of solidarity that happened as a result of them reaching out when other dock workers heard about what was happening. First, ILWU, International Longshoremen Work, Longshore warehouse workers, particularly local 10 on the West Coast, came in with a sizable donation for the strike fund. And then the word was put out. I mean, they the brothers and sisters had the with the thinking to reach out to dock workers around the world. And they were shutting down ports on the other side of the world in solidarity with the dock worker struggle in Charleston and enable them to win, to beat. You know the state of South Carolina, and um, and that company that wanted to set up. Now, of course, the company going to try again somewhere else, and they have, but but they were not mm-hmm. able to beat that solidarity. You know, when workers begin, we be we begin to understand the power that we have, um, of, of just organizing and being in solidarity and being on one accord. You can't do this if folks are all over the place in terms of of solidarity. You you gotta be of one, of one mind and one accord. And and thinking about that, I'm just looking at the uh it's been so encouraging to see the number of new formations in the South that are responding to organizing uh, the South. For example, uh the Southern Workers Schools and Assemblies, uh the community. Uh tell a little bit about the Southern Workers Schools because I know you all had a gathering back there in the spring, and I'm always just totally like, you know, uh joyful with when folks come together, uh, particularly around worker struggles. And uh you all had you know, folks from all over the South, you know, in those spaces. So talk about what came out of that and what you all are trying to do with those Southern Worker Schools and, and the assemblies as well. Well, the Southern Workers Assembly is a formation, if you will, a formation of 
I, I, I call it a new labor kind of formation because it's not it's, it's made up of unions, but it's also made up of organizing committees and, you know, workplace committees that are not at the stage of, of being organized and committee yet, but just beginning to do the work and, and showing each other how to do the work. Right. How to how mm-hmm. to, uh, you know, b- both nuts and bolts kinds of organizing as well as looking at, you know, the need for solidarity and how movement, how bringing in other workers from other workplaces can affect and enhance the organizing that you're doing. And so it's kind of like it's an educational and it's a uh, vehicle and it's a way of breaking the isolation that workers across the South feel with each other. Now, union-wise, kudos to National Nurses Union and to the United Electrical Workers Union, also uh, ILA, International Longshoremen's Association, Local 1422, out of Charleston, the same folks who did fight back in the Charleston Five that we were just talking about. And there's a couple of other locals, of course, UE, uh, Local 150 out of North Carolina is a is a major uh, is a major player in, in bringing workers in. But those two, those combinations of education and breaking the isolation so that folks can build solidarity. So they played a role in, in bringing Amazon workers across the South together. They've, uh, they sit down and they bring, uh, try to bring dock workers together, restaurant workers together. It's really timely that we're having this conversation because there's a school that's coming up next week. Uh, well, I'll, I don't know when you're going to air this, but, um, the weekend of, uh, of November 9th to the 11th. Mm. So I'm not sure when you when we are airing, but uh, there's another school that's coming up, and we know that Amazon workers are are um, looking looking to come through, and so um, it 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 also plays an incubation. Is that the word in, in, as an incubator? In, incubation. Mm-hmm. Yes, <laughs> I'm making up my own mm-hmm. words here. Mm-hmm. You you putting something together and and taking care of a special care until it grows on its that's own. That's right. There you go. There you go. And so and so folks get to see and understand that they are not alone, that the issues that mm. they think are the worst in the world. My Everywhere, you know, we go, it's like everywhere I go, everybody thinks that where they are is the absolute worst and can nobody match you know, <laughs> yeah, the problems right. that they have <laughs> And then they go meet somebody mm-hmm. from another place or another workplace or another town, and they're like, uh, uh, they're talking the same. That's worse, has worse conditions than them, right. right? You know, or more, you know, more horror stories or the same kind of conditions. And so, you know, we put let encourage folks and folks get a chance to put heads together and, and talk mm-hmm. about things to do and things not to do, but also the need for building across the South so that a Southern movement of workers can be rebuilt to challenge local laws in the state or locally uh, to come up with strategies, you know, just like the ruling class comes has strategies that they fight us with across the board, you know, how they came up, you know, people thought, for example, that the, 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 the right to work to starve laws just kind of organically came up in these different state assemblies. no, that was a coordinated action, you know, not just by the GOP per se, but also what is it? The, the American Legislative Executive Council, ALEC, that put together model legislation that that these folks just took to all of the different state legislators. And all of a sudden popped up all these these proposals, you know, and as they have done in all both economically and socially. Because, you know, these, these cultural and social laws affect us, us workers as human beings, too. And so all of that is about, you know, keeping us off balance, distracted. On the defense. On the defense and divided. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And and playing mm-hmm. on, you know, the question of the racism that uh, that 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 gets fed and. When you talk about an incubation in terms of of the United States, you know, look at how they're playing people off and just propaganda twisting folks now around the the Palestine 
piece. It is so, mm-hmm. so insidious. Uh, so we able to mm. folks are able to start seeing and 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 struggling and and ways of struggling around that and new ways of organizing. And so, you know, that is that's um you know some of the things that the Southern Workers Assembly does and they do, do through the schools, and they they uh, encourage mm. the kind of organizing and communications that you know wouldn't normally happen. You know, if we're left into the isolation of our our everyday, you know, go to work, come home, you know, fall out, <laughs> get up, go to work, come home, fall yeah, out, yeah, right, and do it all and over do again, it all over yeah. Again. yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's you know that's part of the Southern Workers Assembly in the schools. There was one last spring, and I think that's the one you were talking about. Mm-hmm. And as I said, yeah. there's another one coming up, you know, in the very near future. So, so Shafia, are these places where campaigns emanate or campaigns are brought to the group for support or a little of both? How does that work? Probably a little of both. I know that, in fact, I know that people bring campaigns, right? And then Mm -hmm. some of also what happens is by virtue of folks coming together, they come up with, and there are proposals for campaigns, you know, to try to bring folks together. Uh, and so, for example, out of uh, maybe, when was it, a year and a half ago, there was a Southern Workers' Power program that got developed and tested out. There was also, mm. before that, there was the um, PPE campaign uh, during the pandemic, Safe Jobs, Save Lives campaign. It particularly took took off in North Carolina, but it was in other parts of the South, you know, which was a campaign for getting protective equipment. Mm-hmm. A statewide campaign for workers to fight for protective equipment on their jobs. And, and Shafi, I think people make an assumption that if you're working somewhere, and this is what COVID illuminated for uh, around a number of things, but particularly around worker conditions. And that is, if you had a workplace, they automatically provided you with the the gear and mask and all that you needed. And I think what we saw was that that was not the case. And in fact, what we, we're hearing from folks on this show is that their unions provided them with mask and, uh, and all of that and the education around COVID. Are you finding that that was the case in the South as well? Oh, child, please. It was the, it was, it was the unions or, and, or it was the Southern Workers Assembly to help either unions or workers committees to fight for the equipment themselves. It wasn't coming out of management. Shoot. I can remember working at the post office and even just things before the pandemic, and even such things as heat, excessive heat, which is, of course, with climate change going to be a major issue, mm, you know, yep. for workers. Um, in fact, that was one of the demands for the UPS workers who didn't have air conditioning in their truck. That's right. That's yeah. right. Well, I remember we didn't have air conditioning. We, and we used to hear about air conditioning, other trucks up north, and we like, how they got mm-hmm. air conditioning? We down here mm-hmm. in the south, and we and it's always at least ten degrees hotter in this mm-hmm. truck than it is outside. Whatever it is outside, and we, you know, we laugh because we say, okay, well, then when are they gonna come up with the excessive heat stand up talk? It'll be when you know by the time they do it, it'll be the fall when the temperatures get ready to drop. <laughs> right, 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 and yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and it and it never quite syncs up for black workers, right? You know, so uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, so yes, those those are they they get generated, you know, from organization of the workers themselves responding to our own needs. It's like you know we know what we're doing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we we are mm-hmm. the experts mm-hmm. at you know how things are carried out. We are the uh, what the essential workers and that you know you you, you notice they hurry up and and, and they they kind of watered that down you know that that mm. the 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 um the the discussion of that so that people didn't really you know they try to keep people's minds off of the fact that you are 
essential. If you don't work, mm-hmm. you're not moving, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Folks who were, you know, who clean the hospitals and clean the streets and, you know, uh, turned the beds over at the nursing homes and uh, kept the bu- the buses running and all those, those are essential jobs and those are where we are. And it's funny mm. that I have these arguments with, with folks who, who may be in other sectors of the economy who think, you know, uh, uh, black workers are, are, we're obsolete. I'm like, what? No, you don't know where we are. Mm. It, it's that consciousness. That's the part of the problem is that consciousness of where we are, what we do and what those jobs are and strategic value about how to look at an overall picture to figure out how do we move together. That's why that solidarity is important. That's why that understanding the the larger picture is important. Um, There was a gentleman who came out with this book called Labor Strategy. Oh, gracious. What he talked about was choke points and looking at an industry where there are choke points in the economy. Mm -hmm. And that that if you identify where those choke points are, then you can have tremendous leverage about what happens. And therefore, know where, if you know where to organize, when, you know, when is strategic to make that move. Um, Mm -hmm. and, and, And so you don't have to have at least initially, the majority of everywhere or the entire industry or the entire company, but you know where, what is strategic to make that move? Mm-hmm. Where's the hub? Yeah. Where's the this that, that makes the whole entity happen and go organize that? Exactly. And I'm thinking about that term essential. And one of the things I know is that you all have found uh, political and popular education to be essential to the development uh, of workers and, and workers organizations. And, and, and I truly believe that because if you don't have an educated, informed worker, you really uh, just got somebody that's going to be in the way. And I'm thinking about when uh, there was a skilled trade union that came to uh, the Organization for Black Struggle. This is post-Ferguson, because, you know, everybody got some money to do something for, you know, the, the, the poor youth. And so they created this program where they were looking for apprentices. And uh, they came to us and say, we got these, you know, jobs is going to be X number. Once they finish, they're going to go skip the whole thing. They're going to come right into the union. They'll be making X number of dollars per hour. And we said, well, that sounds fantastic. Uh, We would like to see some kind of political education as part of the the training to do the skill that one of those days will be for political education around workers' struggles, around workers' history. Uh, That was not a good idea for them. Um, And so we said that's part of the, the, if there's going to be a partnership here, that's going to be a condition. And uh, they they refused to uh, concede on that. So we we pulled out. And so the power of uh, organized, informed worker must be pretty damn scary, even inside of a union. So talk about like what you all have been doing at the community and other spaces to really bring that kind of uh, political education to workers. Well. I mean, educate, you know, I, I thank you for that, that, that lesson. I'm going to take that one back, right? Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to take that one back, right? I, I shamelessly, you know, copy uh, and pass on lessons. Um, no, no problem here. Yeah, we give No credit. copy right here either. <laughs> we give credit now. We give credit. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Education has always been a real part of, of BWFJ uh, history. We've done worker schools ourselves, you know, in the past. Um, I can think back, you know, of bringing folks in, not just simply know your rights, you know, but how does the society work and, and what is it and what role do, do workers play so that we are conscious that we, you know, we, first of all, that we have knowledge. Mm-hmm. We have knowledge, right? You can't figure out the choke point unless you sit workers down and say, how does this work? Who goes mm-hmm. where? 
and you the one that knows mm-hmm. And how that. did they get there? And how did they get mm-hmm. there? Right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then helping people put folk, you know, uh, 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 put it put it all together. Um, we did, in the past, uh, BWFJ uh, called International Workers' Schools, where we partnered up with uh, some international unions. Out of This one was uh, uh, out of Germany, and we did... Uh, one for public sector workers, one for private sector workers, and then one for women, with women. And folks got to talk about their experiences and and figure out, you know, and make connections with each other. The community that is a newly developing, I'll call it partner, um, with BWFJ um, is a combination of, um, of workers and activists and labor scholars Black history scholars um, working together to figure out, to do the education, to, to be the tool that workers need, uh, that workers can use to further educate. So looking at the examples I just talked about in terms of the international school or the other kinds of workshops, other kinds of speakers, we've begun to do a series of, of, um, of webinars. And we're trying to figure out the hybrid version, right, of webinars and meetings that talks about the impact or and the effect of black workers or a or the phenomenon of something on black workers. So for example, let me let me make that real. So right before the um the Teamsters settle their contract, you know, we had discussion with Teamsters on, you know, what's the impact of this? We found out that 20% of the drivers, uh, a UPS, were black black drivers, were black workers. Well, what's the impact of in the community? What is the impact in the union? You know, what role could, should uh, a black caucus play? What are the kind of demands, you know, that are being raised? Uh, so we did that with uh, with the Teamsters and the Teamsters Black Caucus. Then we did a second one. That webinar was called How We Move Black Workers in Transportation and Logistics. And we put together bus drivers and uh, UPS drivers and uh, Longshore. All mm. of these are is logistics and transportation, which mm. many times people don't think about. Right, but, right. You know. This the stuff comes in. I mean, if ever there was a strategy, that's where it needs to be, right there. Logistics. How how is capitalism moving its goods and services, and how to disrupt that? That's right. So it comes. Mm. Oh, so it comes from China. Well, how does it get into the country? You got dock mm. workers who unload it onto trucks, truck drivers who drive it, you know, to terminals, to you know, direct companies, and then you got you know, retail and, and workers who then, you know, uh, unload it at, at, at the facility or postal workers who move it, you know, move mail through. So, you know, it was a, you know, discussion, you know, very rich discussion like that. The second one we did mm-hmm. was on uh, UAW. And what does the UAW strike mean for black workers? And in that, we, we did a thing of where are, Black workers in general in the economy, and where mm-hmm. is the auto? Where is the auto industry? And who's mm-hmm. the auto industry? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that and who does that affect? We just also did a piece uh, with um, a Palestinian American-born Palestinian worker and a a woman worker who is a uh, on the ground coordinator for the Stop Cop City referendum campaign. And you said, mm-hmm. well, what does those two have to do with each other? Well, mm-hmm. um, the same ones who dropping them bombs mm-hmm. are the same ones mm-hmm. who come over here and they training folks in St. Louis. They training police in, in Savannah. They training police in Atlanta. They training folks around the country on those same kinds of tactics. Right. 
They, they, they're connecting the dots and we have to do the same That's thing. Right. So, so Shafia, in the, in the few minutes that we have left, you talked about the, the Palestinian. And I know that this has been almost a divisive issue in our movement around the Palestinian question. But you all know, and you've spoken on that, I think you might even have a statement of why Black workers should be in solidarity with Palestine. Can you talk about how important that is? We've been talking all, this whole conversation has been about solidarity, right? And mm. how in isolation, you know, one of the major strategies of the oppressor is divide and conquer, right? To make me think that what right. you, what's happening to you don't have nothing to do with me. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we just gave an example of what the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, quote unquote, defense force. They're over here training the police who use those same tactics on us in the streets. Where y'all think that mm-hmm. stuff come from? Mm-hmm. That stuff ain't, I mean, you know, folks here, I mean, they do have the intelligence, I guess, to make it up. But. Here you got, I mean, a particular, a particular methodology that is being exported, and we need to know about that. You know, mm. the oppressed mm. also need to link up with each other. The same ones who are, just as we're talking about the police, the same ones who are who have come up with that strategy against the the Palestinians, or the same ones who have come up with the strategy against us who use it again between us and indigenous folks looking for whatever is different. Okay. You taller than me. You know, I got more gray hair than you. I wear glasses. You don't. I mean, they'll figure out something mm-hmm. Anything mm-hmm. that may be different to make us think that we should. In fact, I think about the reparations movement. I know this is not about Palestine per se, but you've got something that's developed around reparations where you got some folks talking about, well, we don't need to talk about folks who can't trace their history back to uh, before 1865 in this country. Well, that's forgetting that, you know, imperialism, capitalism is worldwide. And they playing a chess game and playing chess and we the pawns. And so we're busy, you know, arguing about whether or not we should be in solidarity with Palestine or we should be in solidarity with, you know, Trinidadians fight for reparations or Palestinians fighting against you know, for their own country back. And they'll use that as a way for us not to understand that we are also paying for that. Mm -hmm. It's our money that is paying for those bombs that are being dropped. But we ain't got no health care. We got folks sitting out. I mean, homelessness is increasing exponentially, you know, across this country. And nobody, and that's not being addressed. And when we raise it, they're like, they ain't got no money. But they're right, throwing, right. they throwing money at Ukraine and Palestine. Like, oh, at Israel's already getting three three billion a year plus. Deep, deep pockets. They keep on finding money. Yes, yes. Woo, yes. wait a minute. Here we yeah, go. Yeah. They, they get $3 billion a year. And they was claiming that they didn't have money. They weren't getting basic supplies for their soldiers. Well, what y'all doing with your money? Right, with right. that. Not not three million, three billion with a billion B. With yeah. a B. Yeah. And now these jokers are gonna go back and they talk about to this day. Today, I know again we won't air this today, but today, uh we're taping this on what is it, November third. They just passed in the house, I think it was fourteen billion dollars more to give these folks and they want to do it in a way that they don't even have to account exactly. any of it. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. So, again, we ain't got no health care. We got folks being put out on the street and being made to be criminals. They're yeah. around, you know, across the border, like chess pieces, like pawns, and have, you know, and then, and then playing folks off against these other, you know, thousands of folks. Ain't nobody already ain't got no health care. Ain't already got no housing. And you got folks in the street. And the folks who are living there already said, well, we ain't got no housing. And here you go. You got, you know, 10,000 immigrants who are coming. You know, what else going to do? How come we can't, you know, how we giving housing to these people? We ain't got housing. And so it gets to Mm -hmm. be, 
you know, they're playing people off against each other as opposed to the ones who are making them the policy in the first place. And so, right. you know, those right. those economic reasons, those those political reasons, those moral reasons. Right. Yeah, no, those are all all of the above. All yes. of the above. Yes. It's like they bombed yes. in, in uh, what is it, in the 80s in Philly. And they dropping bombs and killing babies, you know, uh, and and old people, <laughs> you know, in Israel now. And ain't nobody supposed to say nothing. Right. Right. Well, we certainly have have explored a number of issues. We've been all over the globe. But Shafia, we just scratched the surface, right? We yeah, just scratched right. the surface. It's so much that's happening and is potentially going to happen when it comes to workers' rights, particularly Black workers' rights. We thank you so much for taking time out your busy organizing schedule to join us on Black Work Talk. Sister, thank you so much. I'd I love to do it again. We got to hang out some more. I'm going to get you when we were uh, on one of ours. Uh, so we can share and yeah. um, you know yeah. share the work with y'all. OBS is in St. Louis, and the solidarity between both you know the workplaces, the organizations, the communities. You know we are one. That's right. That's right. So we will uh, stay in tune if there's issues or or events that are you happening. We're going to uh, get them out to uh, folks so that they know about it and participate with, especially the ones that are virtual. So you can be anywhere in the world and, and participate in that. But again, thank you and, and uh, continue to struggle, continue the solidarity. Uh, and we'll talk soon. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much. Our thanks to Shafia Mbelia for joining us today. Black Work Talk is published by Convergence, a magazine for radical insights. If you haven't already subscribed, be sure to do so to catch future episodes when they drop and leave a review wherever you listen. You can support this show by becoming a monthly patron for as low as $5 per month at patreon.com slash blackworktalk. Executive producer for Black Work Talk is Ziomara Carpeno, and Josh Elstro is our producer. I'm Bianca Cunningham. And I'm Jamala Rogers, co-host. Thank you for listening to Black Work Talk.